is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 40, our look at best practices in Lean Nash, plus from The Vault, a 2021 conversation that touches on issues surrounding cirrhosis, which is the stage in disease at which Lean Nash is diagnosed far too often. This conversation starts with Louise Campbell pointing to best practice advice number six, which is querying patients routinely regarding levels of alcohol consumption. She points out that many patients will not provide an honest answer and that this is a tough, tough thing to do. Mazen points out that unlike obese patients, with lean patients, the physician has to check every realistic alternative to lean NASH, alcohol certainly being one of these. He agrees that patients might not always provide accurate answers. And the conversation follows along on the challenges of alcohol questioning until I note we're at the bottom of the hour and ask a final question. You'll need to listen to this conversation to hear that question and what the various panelists had to say. Mazen in Michelle's article provides clear, step-by-step guidance on how to identify, diagnose, and treat a rarer form of NASH that far too often is diagnosed in the ED, by which time the patient has progressed to cirrhosis and begun to decompensate. When followed, this algorithm can help lean NASH patients by identifying disease in its earlier stages when it has not yet had a dramatic impact on daily living, quality of life, or life expectancy. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Louise Campbell. Can I ask you, your best practice number six, the clinician should query routinely regarding alcohol consumption. I thought that was quite controversial. Not the questioning of the alcohol intake. It's a sugar drink and it's alcohol, but the testing of somebody who you think is probably not necessarily telling you the truth. I find that uncomfortable, that if, if somebody's going to lie to me or not to be fully disclosed, I can only give the best, or you guys can only give the best inf- information and advice based on the information you get. But then doing additional tests to prove that that, that to me sits uncomfortably in that whole practice provider, honesty, trust scenario. How often do you think that will happen? Is it really something that is going to be done? So that, that to me was the only controversy throughout the documentation, because I, as I say, it sits uncomfortably with me, this, um, you told me this, but I did this test. <laughs> it says something different. That, that, that's not a nice place to be. Mazen Nuruddin. Yeah, again, it comes from, in general, NAFLD and NASH is less suspected in lean people. And we put great emphasis on, because they are not your traditional overweight type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, multiple risk factors, we put emphasis on not missing anything. And as a hepatologist, misreporting or not reporting the real amount of alcohol intake is a problem. And we, we encounter that every day in our practice. Not necessarily, I mean, not necessarily all patients, probably the on, on, on the minority side, but there are patients like that, that they don't report it. And this is what we leave it in the document. I guess we leave it to a great detail in your clinical suspicion and that we give options for tests that emphasized on other documents on what to do. And this is part of the job as a hepatologist. You, you have to walk that uncomfortable walk and um, each one has a different way of determining how much they drink and they are not necessarily like the right way or the wrong way. There are different clinical approaches and bedside manners and approach that hepatologists follow, but it's important not to, to make sure people are did not Google something and they coming to you and they telling you this is I have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and they're not telling you the truth. And we know that sometimes clinical trials later on we find out that they drink more than they were supposed to and maybe that was not the right patient to 
include, there, there's a paper that came on JHAB that showed a lot of NAFLD patients had positive alcohol testing. So such a paper will support our recommendation that you may consider these tests when you have a clinical suspicion. Oh, absolutely. They're just not the most comfortable place to be. And I suppose the old rule of thumb was you half what the relative tells you and double what the person tells you. But in fact, there was a really good presentation in one of the breakout seminars at um, ILC recently. It was on, and Roger, you were there, it was on hair, using hair. It gives you a longer period of time, particularly in relation to clinical studies as to how the effect was on that clinical trial, because you can date it back a long time. So it's a controversial area, but it's an area of great need, I suppose. Let me note that the CRO executive I spoke with immediately after that presentation said, gosh, that'll never happen. By the time you get the answers, you can't do anything with it, except maybe disqualify a patient you're already qualified. And I'm not sure how that would work. So, Or, or people will start shave, shaving their heads. <laughs> might, might be a new business for clinical trial sites, right? You don't need to ask the question. <laughs> Michelle Long. You know, I think the point also with the best practice advice number six around alcohol is that we really need to get this conversation happening. And it's not okay just to say, oh, you don't drink that much, right? <laughs> or you're making assumptions about our patients or feeding them answers. We really need to have conversations around alcohol. Patients report that they do not get asked about alcohol in any kind of detail. Maybe that's true or maybe they're not remembering it, but it really needs to be something that is discussed. And we go into suggestions and actually some of the work that I've done uh, in the Framium Heart Study where we look at different patterns of alcohol use as well. Because when you're really scratching your head and trying to figure out what is contributing to this person's liver disease, understanding maybe it's how they're drinking alcohol, if they're um, having a lot of binge drinking behavior or frequent having uh, many drinks in a short amount of time or those types of patterns, they may be more associated with liver fat. And so this is something that a highly motivated patient can change and alter how they're consuming alcohol and that may make a difference in their liver fat. I think that's true, but you also see the opposite stigmatization. If you're overweight, it's all food. If you're slim, it's always alcohol. And treading that line carefully. And it is an important discussion to start because as you stated earlier on, very few people who are slim get ever asked about their diet. Um, and yet, because they may have lean naffles. I've seen a lot of early 20s, late teens, very slim, just awful college diets and their livers would suggest that. So it, it's about education and that discussion at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this document, we're talking specifically about lean NAFLD, but everyone with NAFLD, you know, needs to have a discussion with their doctor about alcohol use because it's definitely a part of the condition that we are probably under considering for the most part. On the other end of things, you know, we have patients who come in and they're like, look, I swear I don't drink. My doctor has sort of grilled me on this and I'm feeling very uncomfortable. And then, you know, it may be nice to say, look, let's let's measure one of these really sensitive biomarkers and kind of prove it to your doctor as well and, and kind of take it off the table. So that's a nice option as well where patients can say, look, I want you to believe me and I want to kind of move on from this and really get down to what is actually happening in my liver. And it can be nice to, and that's why we kind of make these suggestions for other tests that may be helpful in, in just taking it off the table. So we're, we're kind of at the bottom of the hour and I have, I think I'm pretty much out of questions for right now. Closing question then. Two, two questions, actually. What is the 
one most important thing you want a reader to take out of this article, conceptually? And what is the one most important thing you want them to do differently as a result of having read it? Michelle Armazin, whoever wants to go first. The most important thing about this article, I would say, is that you know there are special considerations in people that are lean who have suspected NAFL. So look at the tables, look at the algorithm. We provide a lot of guidance and support. We know clinicians are busy, so we want them to look this over and be really systematic in how they approach uh, patients with lean NAFLD. And that gets on to, you know, what we want them to change, I would say. It sort of depends a little bit on who the audience is. For primary care, non-GI hepatologists, we want you to recognize that lean NAFLD is an important condition. Patients can progress and have liver-related outcomes. And this can, unfortunately, they often present late um, because it goes unrecognized. So follow the algorithm. Um, we provide information about how to assess for more advanced liver disease and, and how frequently to do that. And then if you're a subspecialist, GI hepatologist, you can also think about what other conditions need to be ruled out, some more rare conditions in the appropriate clinical context may be appropriate to kind of work up. Going back to that table too, everyone should have assessment for the more common conditions. We provide information about how you can confirm the risk stratification that hopefully has already started before you're seeing the patient using non-invasive tests and and how frequently to um, repeat those assessments. Great. Mazen? I cannot add more to that. I think that's perfectly set. <laughs> what, what was that, Mazen? I'm perfect in every way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and not only that, but you know how to stay cool in July in South Dakota. Really impressive things. You've covered the entire landscape and then you get to go to Copenhagen this week. You've got it completely covered today, Michelle. This could be a Sir Galahad kind of moment. <laughs> and, I, and I got only 75% done in half an hour, so I couldn't do it 100%. <laughs> so, Louise, your thoughts? The most important thing I think that people need to realize is to, I suppose, to ask that question about diet in everybody. It doesn't matter what your size, your shape. If you are talking to people about their diet, particularly high sugar, fructose, alcohol, alcohol is sugar, their sweetened beverages, the honey that they add to their tea. If you are in the Arabic population, most of the people that I've met, they always love adding honey to their lovely black teas and things like that. So just asking those questions, there will be flags in everything that somebody says, whether it's lean or non-lean, but particularly with the lean naffled. And I suppose the one thing I would like patients or even nurses who are seeing patients in clinics to take away is A, the diet, but B, if you've, you've got a patient there who's slim with type 2 diabetes, ask the question. Really be probing that little bit more because of their history, because of their likelihood, and particularly if they're of any of the Asian races and ethnicities, because they have higher risks. So again, it's all around the diet. If it becomes a simple question within everybody's assessment, then we can pick out things. There will be red flags, but those were the two really big things for me. And also that framework that a patient can use to say, I've been picked up in the past with a fatty liver on scan. I saw two of them last week, in fact, on Friday morning, and both the same, both slim, both fatty livers, both scores on the doors now because it was only an ultrasound. They never had a follow-up. So things like that are very, very common. We have technologies now that can help primary care, manage these people in primary care, keeps it at source, 
pick out the ones who mean more specialist care and then funnel them. And I think frameworks like this are really, really helpful. And I believe in this, the Stevenism, the KISS. I think this keeps it as simple as it can be to make it doable. And if it's doable and simple, then we should be starting to hit these target populations. Yeah, that's great. I was trying to do this in a series of two to three word phrases and I couldn't quite get it done, but I'm close. The, the first thing is take this seriously, which has two elements to it. Number one is think more expansively about what patients might be at risk based on what you see. And then the second is, is be more systematic about what you do once you identify those patients as being at risk. And I think you've done a fantastic job of laying that out, number one. My, my side thought is that, uh, and this keeps coming back at me in different settings, and it's significantly unrelated, is about the value of FIB4 until we come up with something better, which is that it's easy to get it into a whole bunch of situations. And while it's hardly perfect and has serious flaws that everybody can identify, it gives us a way in moments like this and lots of others to get to a fast answer about what you don't have to be worried about. And here, where no one's thinking about it enough in the first place, it's, it's just a great flag to have. Quentin Anstey always says, let's not let perfection be the enemy of the good. And this is just one more of those cases where it certainly isn't perfect, but it's certainly really helpful. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami on Wednesday, August 17th. Yorn will be back from vacation and Stephen Harrison will be with us. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.